Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, SOS, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in April 2019. After you listen to the stories, stick around for my chat with our special guest, Beth Milligan. Beth is the head writer at the Traverse Ticker, and she's speaking with me about the theme for our next show, You Are Here. In our first story, Ben Whiting isn't sure he'll get his fiancé's approval when he takes in a stray dog. I think as human beings, we have evolved to have friendships and relationships in our life. However, if you're an only child, you don't have a sibling to like practice this on. And so you start developing relationships with things kids might not typically develop relationships with, like older people, or imaginary friends, or houseplants. Uh, yes, I've had 30-minute conversations with trees before in my younger days. Uh, but one thing I had a relationship with that never let me down was Sissy, Cupcake, Muffin, Bosco, and Buddy. And these are the dogs I grew up with in my life. Do we have any fans of dogs in the house? <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, both of my parents were allergic to cats, so I never had the opportunity to get to know a cat. But what I can tell you about a dog is a dog will love you with the full force of their life with a complete amnesia for faults. And it's wonderful, especially when you're a nine or 10 year old boy trying to train one because all your faults come right up to the surface. Uh, but one day as I was trying to train my dog Bosco to turn over, my dad gave me a little piece of advice. He said, you know, boy, if you want to train a dog, there's a trick to it. My dad was not from Michigan. <laughs> I said, dad, what's the trick? If you want to train a dog, you gotta lower your expectations and double down on your commitments. This is a lot for a nine-year-old to take in. But I thought about it, I marinated on it, and I tried. I was like, all right, so instead of teaching Bosco to turn over, we're just gonna try to sit. And instead of working with him for 15 or 20 minutes a day, we'll try half an hour to an hour. And I was shocked that within two to three days, this sentient being, this, this creature, would sit when I asked him to. And it gave me immense pride, not just pride in myself for doing the training, but pride in my dog for listening. And that's, that connection is like a drug, oxytocin specifically. But I knew in that moment that dogs were gonna be a part of my life for the rest of my life. And fast forward, I'm out of college, I'm going to Chicago, I'm an actor, I'm a street performer, I travel a lot, I live in apartments and in friends' cars, so I can't really have a dog. But then, this feeling, it continues to grow, it continues to just exponentially wanna bust out of me until 2013, when I was uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. I was lucky enough to get a three-month contract there as an actor. And one day after a long rehearsal, the lighting designer woman comes in and in her arms she has this black and white skin and bones furball. And she's like, I just found this guy in an alley. He has a collar 
but no tag. And I don't know what to do. I, I would take him back to my apartment, but I have a dog who doesn't get along well with other dogs, and I, just, I don't know what to do. And it's like all that tension and all that desire to have a dog just at once just exploded out of me. And without a word, I walked up to her, I grabbed the dog, and I left. <laughs> and you know, people laughed when I did it then too, but that's only because no one tried to take it out of my hands, I think. So I get back to my apartment where I don't even know if dogs are allowed, but it's me and this little guy, and I realize I have to name him. I have to name him something. So I look at him, and I say, Clarence. Clarence? And he just looks at me. I'd always thought I was going to name my first dog Clarence because it's the saxophone player in the E Street Band, the band that plays the Bruce Springsteen. I'm a huge Springsteen nut. That's another story entirely. But Clarence wasn't doing it. So then I thought of this song, this song that Bruce Springsteen sings called 10th Avenue Freeze Out. If you know what, it's like a little mini rock opera about this character named Scooter. So I look at him and I go, Scooter? And boom, he jumped into my lap, tail wagging, licked me, and it was done. And I was, I was just like a little kid again with that instant love, that dog love, and I could feel it coming out of him. And Scooter and I went everywhere together. I took him to rehearsals, to restaurants. He sat in the wings while I performed. Uh, I got up early every day and went on walks. And I had never done that before. And it was great because what's really interesting is I was at a time in my life when I was questioning myself a lot. Where am I going? What's my career going to be like? Uh, I had just gotten engaged. So all these questions are festering. And it's really, really interesting that a gift dogs give us is they help us realize that when we're focused outside of ourselves, it's a lot easier to focus on our purpose. And it's just a wonderful thing. But there's another piece of advice my dad said. He said, it's a lot easier to get through life if you're not a horrible human being. So I was also trying to find the owners of this dog because he had a collar but no tag. And this entailed, I put up posters, I contacted the Humane Society, I even took him to the vet to see if he had like, any chips or anything. Nothing. And then it happened. At the end of 30 days, the Humane Society calls me up and says, Mr. Whiting, no one has called in to claim Scooter. He's yours if you want to keep him. Hell yes, I want to keep this dog. Oh, and I was on cloud nine. My best friend came up to me. He said, man, Ben, this is so great. Congratulations. What's your fiance think of it? I said, what? <laughs> like your fiance, you know, the woman you've promised to spend your life with make decisions with. I haven't told her yet. And I realized immediately what I had to do. That was my first big lesson in marriage, by the way, as well. So I called my fiance, Aaron, up. I say, Aaron, great news. I got a dog. And she goes, Ben, you know I'm not a dog person. I say, but why not? She's like, well, I grew up with cats. And plus, like, you travel a lot. Cats take care of themselves. Uh, I just don't think it's a good idea for us right now. I said, okay, okay. That makes sense. Cats do kind of take care of themselves. 
dogs, what they have in love, they sometimes lack in survival skills and impulse control. I had a friend in college whose dog almost killed itself because the dog food bag fell over and it just ate, and just didn't stop at all until my friend found it and then I had to go pump its stomach, but another story. So I said, tell you what, Aaron, how about this? I don't want to take him to the shelter. I'm going to keep him here and how about you meet him? And then we'll make the decision together. And she said, okay, that sounds like that's a reasonable compromise. Oh, man. So now we have to get Scooter ready. We have to get Scooter ready. So I am going to lower my expectations of this dog, but I'm going to double down on my commitments. I take him to the vet, make sure he has all of his shots. He is registered. I got him fixed, which he immediately forgave me for. Dogs do that. That's crazy. <laughs> then we had a small training issue. He was great. He always used the bathroom outside, so I wasn't worried about that. But whenever you left, he would get this kind of separation anxiety and start barking. And I'd had a few notes left on my apartment and my friend's apartment whenever I left him in there and had to go, like, grab a bite to eat and come back. So I spent three days doing nothing but walking out of the apartment, closing the door, and waiting for this dog to start barking. And I'd immediately come in when he barked, scolded him, and we did that for three days to make sure we knit this problem in the bud, and we did it. And it was the day before Aaron arrived, and we had one last thing to, to, to nail down, and that was the dog's appearance. So I took him to a groomer. I bought this dog a hoodie. Oh, man. And I knew I had nailed his appearance because the day Aaron arrived, I had him sitting on the ground. I said, sit. He was very perfect. He had his little hoodie on. She opened the door and he just looked at her and his tail. And I knew I did well because my wife's brother was with her and he just looked over and goes, oh, you're dead. <laughs> Feeling good. Feeling good. But Aaron says, you know, Ben, I just want to make sure, let's have the conversation tomorrow. Today, I just want to spend a day with the dog and get to know him. I was like, that's fine. And all the, all the preparation was going perfectly. The dog walked, he healed, used the bathroom outside, went everywhere with us. And of course, everyone was like, oh, your dog is so cute. He's great, blah, 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 blah. And I'd always be like, he's not our dog yet. <laughs> <laughs> And it gets to the end of the night. Everything's gone great. The dog is in his little doggy bed that I bought him beside the bed. Um, and Aaron and I are in bed. And I was like, so what'd you think of, of, of Scooter? She's like, we'll talk about it tomorrow. So we go to sleep. And then the next thing I know, I hear Aaron. She pokes me. She goes, what's he doing? And I look up. And Scooter's on the bed. And he's looking at me, and he just looks at me, and literally, metaphorically, shits the bed. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking right now, triple it. <sighs> I guess that was fun while it lasted, buddy. So Aaron, I get up. She's like, you're cleaning the sheets and the bed now. And I did. And I, 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 I figured, done, done deal. And I was like, you know, I guess I can 
take him to the shelter tomorrow. And I and Erin didn't say anything. She let me. She, I said that. I finally get all the sheets in the bed. And then we're laying there in our clean sheets, Scooter in his bed. And she says, Ben, what's the point of having an eight-pound dog if he doesn't sleep in the bed with us? And she called him, jumped in the bed, and I just looked at her quizzically, and she said, I get it now. I loved him the instant I saw him. And it was the first time in my life I really had been on the receiving end of my dad's advice. And I'll tell you what it feels like when someone you love lowers their expectations of you <laughs> and double downs on their commitments. And the result of that is it motivates you to want to be the person your dog thinks you already are. Thank you. In the next story, James Berg discovers that in order to get the help he needs while abroad, he may need to give a little help himself. I, I want to talk about Paris, France, but first I need to understand what was happening to the cathedral, Notre Dame. Why did that happen? Okay, well, that's a nice way to begin. Um, I have a nice, uh, steady life. Um, have a family, home, job, just like a lot of people. But sometimes I need to get away. So uh, I try to travel whenever I can. A couple years ago, I planned a tour, um, booked a few gigs and grabbed the guitar. And I went through France, uh, the Netherlands. I went to New York City, down to Philly, um, Pittsburgh, I had a show in Pittsburgh, and then back to Chicago. So I got to kind of kiss my wife and daughter goodbye and then have my little adventure. Um, and uh, the first city I went to was Paris. Uh, and there was a man there who was supposed to, he has in the past helped me with get shows, he was supposed to help me again. And immediately he started hitting me up for cash. Uh, he was this kind of jazz singer and he would kind of roll his own cigarettes and they'd kind of hang from, from his lip. He said, James, I want to make jazz with you. <laughs> but first, you got to give me 200 bones. Um, I said, why? And he, didn't, he said it was a loan. He was going to pay me back. Uh, I said, I, I can't. I don't have $200. He said, why don't you ask your wife? And that kind of pissed me off. <laughs> um, so this was the beginning of my tour. Uh, I, uh, I, wrote a, I wrote a text to him and to the other guy in town who was going to help me, and I said, you know, Paris sucks, and you know, it's too expensive, and you guys aren't helping me at all, and I'm out of here. The other guy luckily uh, wrote right back. He was a good guy, um, a little bit younger, my age, and uh, uh, he said, you can stay with me. Uh, so uh, I stayed with him for two weeks. He lived in Montmartre, and he had a... a a little, they have, it's called Chambre de Bain, the, the maid's quarters. It's about the size of a bed. And <laughs> the thing that I learned during this trip, uh, because I was, I was hitchhiking and I was staying on floors or, or on sofas or beds, uh, that I, I was able to have this kind of intimate connection with all these different people. And I found that, uh, um, that it worked best if I just tried to kind of 
like the jazz guy said, I, you know, kind of make jazz to you and just kind of like try to, try to figure out this person's rhythm and live that person's life. And so for, for two uh, weeks, I was with this guy in, he was a poet. Everybody in Paris is a poet. <laughs> uh, they, have, they have shows at bookstores and libraries and, and uh, bars and something every other night. Uh, so this guy, his kind of thing was that he, he wrote poems about pigeons. He was the pigeon poet. So when he'd take the stage, everybody in the audience would coo. Coo. <laughs> and he was a brilliant, funny man, but I just happened to catch him at a very bad time in his life. He had just had a divorce, and he was drinking heavily, and I needed to fit his rhythm. So, uh, um, so we spent every evening walking the streets of Paris until dawn, drinking cheap red wine and, and talking about poetry. And it was kind of fun, but um, I'm an epileptic and I'm not really very balanced. And so uh, I spent about one week with him before I, I, I had a major complete breakdown. And uh, uh, I, was, I was in the park and I was with somebody else and this woman kind of took care of me for, for the afternoon and the evening and I came back to his place and uh, um, it was, it, was, it was chaos, and I had finally kind of got calm, and I walked in, and he was, there, there was broken glass everywhere. Uh, this, is, this was the life that he was living at that time, and I just kind of, my heartbeat went up, and I, I just started apologizing. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, cleaning up, and we walked up to the, ch the cathedral, uh, Sacre Coeur, and we had this great long talk, and he said, James, what do you want out of life? And I said, balance, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy the way it is. Uh, I've got my family and every now and then I can have this kind of crazy moment with somebody like you. And he didn't understand that. He said what he wanted most was enlightenment. And what he wanted was to be able to say something that really connected to people. And, uh, and we drank all night looking over at the city and we, we stumbled home to his place, kind of arm in arm, trying to keep each other up. Uh, but I wished that there was something more that I could do for him because he was really struggling. And when I left, um, you know, I heard pretty soon after he lost his lease and he was sleeping on the streets and he was coming to these weekly events and he wasn't showered and he was confused and it got very cold. And in November, finally, a group of people uh, got together and they called his sister and they said, you've gotta, you've got, you need to save him. Uh, and she bought him a plane ticket and took him home. And what I, th I think about that, and I think that uh, uh, we all want to help each other as much as we can. Uh, sometimes it's hard to give as much as you think you can, but it's important to take risks uh, because you only have one chance. Thank you. <laughs> Next, Jen Loop realizes how much she takes for granted that good friends will always be there after a potentially devastating car accident. I only ever have one nightmare. It takes a few different forms, but it always has to do with driving. And I don't know if this is from growing up learning how to drive in northern Michigan, um, but usually there's snow involved, but almost always it's a very steep hill 
that I do not want to drive up, and I have to. And then as I'm coming down, of course, the brakes aren't working. And I, I count myself fortunate in a lot of ways, one of which is I don't have scary psychological nightmares. There's never you know, a person or a being or a spirit that's coming after me. This is the only dream that I will ever have that will give me angst. Now, I myself have never been in a traumatic accident, and neither have I lost friends or family. But in 2003 or 2004, I received a phone call that my brother, my boyfriend, and one of my best friends were in an accident. Now, to back you up and give you a portrait of these people, first we'll start with my brother. He is two years younger than me, three grades below me, and we've always had the same mutual friends. We're very similar in personality, and we like the same things, and we like having intellectual conversations, and we're pretty close. What ended up happening as I aged out of high school and he got into high school, his group of friends melded with my group of friends, and I had a lot of guy friends, and we were all very close. My boyfriend, Matt, became good friends with my brother, Alan, and they're one of our other, all of our best friends, was named BJ. Now, BJ is a character. He is about six feet tall, curly blonde hair. He is smart and witty and funny and also a risk taker. And BJ, Alan, and Matt were all working this summer out at uh, a golf course called Crystal Downs. Crystal Downs is near Frankfurt. It's a private country club. I think that the membership requires someone to die in order for you to get a membership there. And you have to know like 15 people. It's a, it's a pretty exclusive place. But all of them, well, Matt and Alan were very into golf. And this course was built by Alistair McKenzie. I know a little too much about golf course architecture from these guys. Um, and they took jobs valeting and bartending so that they could play this course. It was that exclusive, it was just a touchstone, it was a fun thing to do in the summer. And they would go out there almost every weekend. Now, we were all in our early 20s. We didn't drink a lot. That was not much of the fun. So when they were out, it wasn't a concern that they were coming back drunk. It was a long drive, but that wasn't really the worry. More so, the worry was that BJ, I think in about, four months, had gone through about six cars. Um, <laughs> and this was funny. So this was, it, one of the things about car accidents and being young and, and worrying about things and not worrying about things is it's something you do every day, driving a car. It's not something you think of as, as dangerous as it is. And so this was part of BJ's persona. Well, I got this phone call at about 10 o'clock at night and it was Matt, it was my boyfriend. He asked me to come out because there had been an accident. So I drove out and actually met them at the gas station in honor. Now, one of the things um, about me to remember is I don't have any visual memory. This is a thing, some people are like this. Um, when I'm thinking of memories and I'm thinking of past events, they almost are always attached to words or emotion. I have no pictures that come into my head when I'm thinking about things that happened in the past. I think in a lot of ways this has helped me um, move on from things and not really recall things too vividly. This is a picture I do remember. 
So I drove up, and I don't remember being angsty on the way, but I got there, and on the flatbed truck was this, I'm going to see if I can get this right because I'm not a car person, 1990 Nissan 240 that was mangled. This thing was destroyed. There was nothing about this car that made it look like three people had walked away. And what had happened was BJ, in a rush to get back to Travers to meet another friend, had taken a hairpin curve. And the car, as they said later, just never made the turn. And it dodged two giant trees. It took down some small trees. It got stopped by a few trees. They definitely left the ground. And somehow, these 20-year-old boys all walked away from it. I remember not at the time being upset. And I think it's something to do with how my memory attaches, but also how when you're young, these things just become stories. There is still a joke in this friend group about, well, the phrase really is, oh shit, Beej, because that is what Matt said as this was happening. There was no screams of terror, there was no nothing, just a deadpan, oh shit, Beej, which we still use. Um, and I probably at the time was just pleased to be part of the story these things become the narrative of such a group of people. But as I start thinking about this, um, all of these men are still in my life. And BJ has two five-year-old twins. My boyfriend and I, Matt, uh, we had 12 years together and actually broke up around when we were 30. He got married this last May. I went to his wedding, and he's expecting a baby in a week. My brother is... Um, He's working for Notre Dame, and he's engaged. And these people are all such profound people still in my life. So much so, I got in a car with BJ last Thanksgiving. I was driving. Um, and <laughs> but he was teaching me to drive a stick, um, a stick shift. And he's good at this. This is something that is fun for him. But we were really just driving up and down the road where his parents live where my mom lives, where his children play with my sister's children. And we still have that kind of relationship that is born out of decades of knowing someone. I was getting so frustrated about learning something new. I was crying, and he was just like, oh, Jen, we can do this. And when I think of these threads in life, and when I think of these people that we might be fortunate enough to know and have for a long period of time, it is so remarkable to think about those times when your life could have and should have changed and then didn't. Next up, Daniel Marbury wants to find a way to help when a tornado devastates the Alabama town where he resides. On April 27, 2011, my workday ended early to the sound of tornado warning sirens. I joined the slow flow of people moving down to the basement at the University of Alabama Business School. I stayed on the phone with my mom at the time because she just called me 
and I was trying to talk her down from the worry that she had. She was watching the news a state away, and um, so we stayed on the line as I was taking shelter. For my position, I just couldn't get worked up about it. I felt like I was going through the motions of another tornado drill like I grew up with uh, all throughout my childhood in the southeast. The only way I expected this to end was some cheery announcement thanking me and sending on my way. I was only a little annoyed when my call dropped with my mom because the conversation had been distracting me from the growing smell of bodies gathered together in a small space. More than 100 people were clustered around classroom furniture um, in the dimly lit basement, and I made small talk, biding the time until we would be released, of course. Most people were doing the same, and some were hunched over smartphones, probably refreshing the news, weather, social media. After five, the murmur of trapped boredom started to break up with spurts of excitement as people passed a phone around, probably sharing some post. The news started coming to light that a tornado had hit in our town. A college staff person made an announcement that the storm could double back, and so we'd have to stay close uh, in shelter until we got the sign for the all clear. My stomach twisted with an anxious feeling when I realized that my mom was probably interpreting our drop call differently. She was probably pacing around the house, listening to Weather Channel at full volume and wondering if she said, I love you. Did I? I couldn't even text her to put her mind at ease. Uh, nothing would get through from my phone. When we were finally released without any more news or information from the shelter, all I could think about was feeling that there was a procedure missing from my grade school disaster practice. We never extended the exercise to know, as students, what were we supposed to do in a tornado hit town? I felt this feeling of a responsibility to do something, but I didn't know where or how to start. The power was off at my house, and so I spent the first hours doing my best to connect with people that I could uh, over spotty and slow service. We swapped confirmation of safety. Um, I got, you know, in, tried to get bits of information about what happened. My friend texted me that the student government had tweeted they were accepting donations and offering temporary shelter to people who were um, seeking it at the student rec center. So my friend and I, Lynn, uh, my friend Lynn and I met up there and, and didn't find anyone in charge of the process, so we started up setting a, a system to receive donations. Every 30 minutes or so, a few folks would come in, dazed, t with tired eyes, seeking shelter. They seemed a bit relieved to share a little about the damage they had witnessed, um, but they were embarrassed to accept the intimate things we could provide, like sweatpants or toiletries. Even these shy smiles of gratitude gave me a sense of hope for the personal connection that I could tell was uh, buried underneath the restless concern that I had been having. Lynn and I kept uh, sorting late into the night, um, even after people stopped arriving. We started to hit a delirious place of sleep deprivation uh, that egged on our imaginations, and we started talking about next steps for the recovery process as if we had been suddenly appointed to be part of the ongoing recovery efforts uh, in essential roles, even though we just showed up at the first beacon to do something and help. I was currently working as an AmeriCorps VISTA member, and I fantasized that maybe my service could 
pivot and address this tragedy head on, right in the center of the disaster, I would just have to make room by setting aside the rest of my important community building work for two months. I got out of bed quickly the next day when I heard my roommates waking up. My roommate Joe said he saw a Facebook post of our friend Elliot, uh, and he was okay, and Joe was gonna see what he could do to help. I rushed to get my boots on, and I tugged him out the door as quickly, because I, I didn't want to miss out on this opportunity to help right in the heart of the disaster. This news beamed like a bat signal to me. Tuscaloosa is nicknamed the Druid City for the old oaks that are all around town. Elliot's neighborhood was in a surprisingly forested grove, just a little less than a, a mile from a shopping plaza. As we approached the area, the tree damage was noticeable bit by bit. Um, and then all of a sudden we stepped past this invisible line and I forgot to breathe. It was a complete shock looking out over a mile and a half sprawl of devastation. This is splintered wood, twisted metal, and the littered things from people's homes. We could see two miles of the tornado path unobstructed to a Home Depot that sat on the hilltop, unobscured, which would have been covered by houses, trees. We found the group that we were looking for, even though there weren't any familiar landmarks left to follow. Uh, we just followed based on the clear line of sight that we had uh, to recognize the people we were looking for. Ellie was surprisingly cheer cheery and upbeat for the survivor of the total devastation of his neighborhood. He was really hopeful because of how many folks had showed up to help. He had made the Facebook post to say, I'm alive, not to send a distress call, but we came anyways. I can barely imagine what it was like for him when he came out of shelter from a neighbor's basement to find his house completely gone. There wasn't anything that looked like the exterior of a house, just a few scattered walls, a stoop um, and a window that I remember just hanging in space, just kind of framing outside on both sides. It was supposed to rain the next few days, and so anything we might be able to salvage, we had to get out quickly. We fanned out with our heads down, searching for signs of anything, especially memories or valuables. I remember mostly digging up boring stuff, shoes, notebooks, a vacuum. But as a group, we had some triumphant finds. A collapsed closet revealed most of Elliot's photography equipment. And any photographer knows that piecing together a lens collection is, is many years of work. We found this painting that was a memento from an undergrad road trip just laying on his mattress, left over from a wall that had been completely destroyed. We found 60-year-old drawings from his past grandfather that would have been irreplaceable. You could see our collective impact adding up in the five or six truckloads of stuff that went off to the storage unit. Um, but I also felt the impact in Elliot's ability to laugh and smile with friends just after he had experienced a life turned upside down with most of the contents poured out onto the street. Joe and I trekked back to the disaster the next day to do more good deeds, but we were turned away by barricades. The National Guard had mobilized and they were checking the area for IDs to prove that people were of residence. They must have been there to protect looting or to keep people from um, 
live wires and leaked gas lines. The news said the town had been declared in a state of national emergency. President Obama was on his way with FEMA coming soon. We realized how lucky we were to have made it to Elliott so soon because now it was impossible to get in as an outsider and it would have been just such a daunting task to go through the rub rubble um, with just him and his roommates instead of 15 people helping. I was restless to be cut off from the action as electrical crews and chainsaw teams worked slowly through the, the mess with nothing to distract me from this guilty feeling that kept creeping up, telling me I was just the lucky neighbor doing nothing uh, to people who had survived, who must need all sorts of assistance. The risk that the news was trying to tell felt small in comparison to the feeling of hope and purpose and connection that was the reward that I had for helping a friend in need. Without a truck or a chainsaw or heavy machinery or a church, there wasn't really any outlet for the sort of hands-on work that I wanted to do for people. It was frustrating to feel like the process was so detached from ready and able volunteers. So I signed up for the only volunteer opportunity that I could find, which was sifting through donations in a large parking lot, just going through giant boxes the size of kitchen stoves. Um, and I just felt this, these cynical thoughts keep popping up. Why the hell would someone give some shining disco ball looking dress <laughs> at a time of disaster? <laughs> of what immediate necessity did that serve? Did they even stop to consider the clothes that they were giving to provide shelter? I wanted to institute a t-shirt, pants, and shoes only policy. And so after a couple hours of lonely sorting, finding as many holy clothes as whole clothes, um, I just left with the feeling of hives that broke out of my arms from who knows what. <laughs> and the only hope I had was the hope that no one might get sick as part of a disease outbreak to follow from the germs that piled on and all the haphazard helping donations that people had given. I never got a, another chance to volunteer in the direct person-to-person -person way that I was seeking from the tornado, and so I settled back into a regular rhythm, uh, just watching the slow grinding cleanup happen. Um, and then in July, I moved north to Michigan to take another AmeriCorps position. I've come to realize now that I wasn't just the next door neighbor to disaster. It's my truth that I am the survivor of a climate catastrophe. This tornado that hit Tuscaloosa had 190 per mile per hour winds that tore apart a mile and a half wide area for 80 miles all the way to Birmingham. The real context that gives me shivers is that this tornado is part of what's known as the 2011 super outbreak in which 216 tornadoes occurred from midnight to midnight on April 27th alone. Many of these were just as powerful as the ones I lived through, and some were stronger. I keep living my story over and over again when I see the damage from a new record-breaking weather event. Next time I'm faced with community crisis, I want to be sure I can take action for the long haul that it takes, rather than getting stuck waiting on the other side of a barricade. I haven't changed careers to emergency management. I'm not a prepper yet but I'm convinced to working every day to build strong connections between people that might last beyond uh, a state of emergency. 
I plan to grow deep roots here where I live as part of a survival strategy. I know that when shit hits the fan near me again, the way I heal is by helping in some meaningful way that really matters to someone. Let's talk soon about how we'll stay connected when our phones don't work in some troubled time. Because I'll be thinking of you, hoping you're safe, and wanting to figure out what we can do together to recover. In the next story, Heather Hudson's house has a water problem, and she's determined to figure out a way to fix it. Did you check to see if, they, if you have a leak, she said. I hadn't thought about that, and I replied, I don't know, and I ended the call and made my way outside. My water bill that was almost three times higher the past two months than the previous months, and I had thought it was a meter error or an end of a cycle correction or something. A leak never crossed my mind. It was dark outside already, as it was December. I made my way around the outside of my home. I removed the cover to see underneath into the crawl space. I shined my phone from my flashlight from my phone inside and saw water gushing out onto the dirt ground. I immediately shut off the water and went into the house where it was warm and I started pacing. It looked really bad. Something obviously was broken and water appeared to be pouring out from multiple uh, sources. After a few minutes of gathering my thoughts and calming myself with deep breaths, I called the plumber that had worked on my place previously and he said he could be over by 3 p.m. the next day. He said I should turn my water back on to prevent the pipes from freezing and shut it off again at noon so at least most of the water had dissipated by the time he got there. I did as he suggested and I turned the water back on. I crouched there for a moment, watching the water just pouring out. I felt like I was watching my money and time and emotional energy draining out with it. It was very strange to go about my evening, doing dishes, washing laundry, taking a shower, knowing that I was allowing gallons of water to pour out onto the ground. I realized it likely had been going on for about three months, but it had, I hadn't thought about it or it hadn't bothered me until now because now I knew it was happening. The parallels of my newly realized water issue and my recent health issues was not lost on me. I was a few weeks into a three-month treatment plan for my hip and neck pain. These weren't new problems. The only thing that had changed is now I had a doctor that also knew about them. And just like the broken pipes, once the light, in this case an x-ray, illuminated the extents of my inflexibility and misalignment, there was no denying the problem anymore. I was noticing improvement with my treatment, but it was slow and somewhat painful. I was taking naps when I should be working. I told myself it was because I was tired and in pain, which was kind of true, but I knew it was also because I was depressed. I had a lot on my plate with raising my kids by myself, trying to keep my businesses running, 
maintaining the house, and doing my best not to acknowledge the feeling that I was lonely. Most days, I just wanted to curl up into the fetal position, and maybe when I got up, it would magically be healed, and I'd have lots of money, and I would be in love. <laughs> it never worked. The only thing accomplished was me getting further behind on my responsibilities. I'm sure there is rarely a good time for your pipes to break, but for me, this seemed like the worst possible time. The following day was Friday. At noon, I shut the water off as instructed. The plumber arrived shortly after three. I stayed by the water valve, and he belly crawled underneath to try to figure out where the water was coming from. The crawl space under my home is about 18 inches, and even less in some places. He is not a small man. <laughs> so this was not going to be easy for him. He found the area he thought it was coming from, but there was a piece of plywood blocking the pipes. Therefore, after crawling back out and collecting some tools and crawling back in, he cut through the wood so he could see what was happening. Luckily, he found the source right away. A T-junction where three pipes converged had broken. He was able to fairly quickly remove it and replace it. I turned the water back on, and thankfully, that was the only leak. In just over an hour, the leak was fixed. This was good news. The not-so-good news is I had about 100 square feet of soaking wet insulation, and it was December. So it had to be replaced as soon as possible before everything started to freeze. I would love to have paid somebody to crawl under there and repair everything, but I didn't have the funds for that, and I couldn't justify having someone else fix something I should be perfectly capable of doing myself. As it was getting dark, any further repairs were not going to happen that night. So I put a space heater in to hopefully prevent everything from freezing and headed to the store to buy the things I would need to replace it in the next day. Saturday morning, I suited up in my old snow pants and a ratty coat and my boots and a hat with a mask and work gloves and safety glasses. I put the hood on over all of that and tightened it up under my neck. I felt pretty ready to take this on. I also en had enlisted the help of my 16-year-old son to sit by the entrance to be my runner for when things were needed. Because getting in and out wasn't going to be easy. Once we were ready, we headed outside and we rounded the corner and I could hear that music that they play in the movies when the badasses are about to go do something amazing. <laughs> and we're just like around the corner like, yeah, deliberate strides and determined faces. We reached the opening, removed the cover, and as I started to poke my head in, the rock music in my mind stopped when I had thought, I hope the neighborhood skunk hasn't decided to live under here. <laughs> I pushed that aside as I started to army crawl in. The first beam is the hardest as it is the lowest. I had to lay completely flat with the beam pressing down on my back and pro propel myself forward like a snake wiggling side to side and pushing with my feet. Once past that, there was just enough space to roll over. 
I crawled to the first opening where there was the biggest, largest hole that had been created in the plastic mesh that was holding up the insulation. Laying on my back, I started to psych myself up. You can do this. Just get it over with. Don't worry about all those spider, heads that, spider webs that are less than a foot away from your face. I blindly stuck my hand up into the black space. Blindly, because it was dark, because I couldn't turn my body enough to see inside, and because my eyes were closed. <laughs> I was trying to convince myself that nothing would want to live in soaked insulation, and I wasn't about to just pull an entire family of chipmunks down on my face. I rolled, reached, grabbed, and pulled pile after pile of wet insulation out and onto the ground next to me and into a waiting garbage bag. As I filled each bag, I would push it towards my feet and then kick it toward the exit so my son could collect it. Once that cavity was done, I scooted over to where the leak had originated. I surveyed the hole in the plywood that the plumber had cut out, and upon further inspection, I noticed the whole sheet was water damaged and covered in mold. I needed to replace everything it was holding up, so I would need to remove it. I noticed that it was held in place by two pieces of wood. It was then that I hoped my dad hadn't used any screws and simply relied on gravity to keep it in place. <laughs> I rolled onto my back and just laid very still, catching my breath, as these seemingly tiny movements labored my breathing and were difficult with the limited mobility of my neck and hips. I laid there trying to formulate a plan. I had several brief thoughts about how I was going to remove the board, but mostly I was just questioning my life choices and how they had led me to laying on the dirt under a home, staring at spiderwebs. Later, when I relayed this story to my father, he replied, interesting, when I was laying in the dirt under your home, installing that plywood, I too was questioning your life choices. At least now, I had a better appreciation for the effort he put forth to fix and replace things in small spaces. As I laid there catching my breath, my son interrupted my musings. Hey, Mom, how's it going? I'm getting kind of bored sitting over here. Oh, yeah? Would you rather crawl under here and pull all this wet insulation down on your face? He quickly responded, no, I'm good. Pulled back into the present, I scooted into position and began pushing on a, a two-by-three piece of wood holding up the plywood. The angle was incredibly awkward. I managed to get my boot on it and pushed. It moved, slightly. Good, no screws. I repositioned to try to get more leverage and kicked again. I did this over and over until the board fell out. Now, all the weight was on the other board. This one proved to be more stubborn. Kicking wasn't working, as I couldn't get a good angle, and my hips were hurting, so I didn't have the strength to make the board move. I tried hammering, which wasn't working either, as the space was too cramped to get any force behind it, and I was worried it would bounce back and hit me in the face. 
I eventually had my son crawl in and push up on the plywood with his feet, and we were able to kick it out, which, of course, caused that entire sheet of plywood to collapse on top of me. I maneuvered it over my body and towards the entrance so my son could pull it out into the yard. I removed all the insulation in that area, too. Once that was done, I started the difficult task of unrolling new insulation, cutting it, shoving it into the plastic mesh underbelly. And once all the insulation was in, I needed to seal it all up. The plastic mesh had broken open, which left the insulation exposed. I pulled it closed with the best thing money can buy, duct tape. <laughs> I kept everything in place, and, but I needed to get a four by eight sheet of foam in place to keep it all in there. To do this, I had to lay the foam on the top of me and push one end into the beam to just get it where it needed to be. And then with my feet and my hands and my head and my shoulders, just like <laughs> over and over and over until it bumped into the beam on the other side. Once it had reached there, then I had to shimmy over to that side and set it on the ledge. Then I had to come back to the other side and install the next piece in much the same fashion, only now it was more difficult because there was already a piece that I needed to overlap, so we had to push harder, more parts of your body you never thought you'd use to lift things. I got this, my son's feet involved one more time, and we were finally successful. After three hours of crawling and scooting and straining and stretching beyond my perceived physical limitations, it was done. After crawling around, collecting all the tools, bagging up any additional trash, and tossing everything toward the entrance to be removed, I laid there a minute, catching my breath, observing my work, and feeling a sense of accomplishment and a sense of peace. A calm started to settle over me. Not only had I repaired the damage to my home, I also felt like I had repaired the damage to my resolve to make the changes necessary to live a better life. When I crawled out from under my home that day, I emerged a more empowered person. I've heard it said that if you argue for your limitations, you get to keep them. I decided that day I was done arguing for my limitations, making excuses, and hiding from my life. In the four months since, I have made great strides with my health and my businesses. There is always room for improvement, but I'm happy with my progress. I even found a man to fall in love with who says sexy things to me like, why don't you sleep in and I'll drive the kids to school. <laughs> that one's a keeper. I wouldn't wish broken pipes and wet insulation on anyone, but I am grateful for the catalyst that reminded me that even, in my, even if my only option is to crawl, I will crawl until I'm strong enough to pull myself up to walk into the change I want to see in my life. Thank you. In our last story, I think I'm doing the right thing by staying in a relationship with someone who ultimately causes more trouble than he's worth. Your name is Charlie, right? I'm guessing you're, what, 24? 
It's amazing to think how little information we had available to us in the 90s when we were deciding that we were attracted to someone. So when I decided that I wanted this Charlie guy to start paying attention to me, confirming his name and guessing his age were my move. He would later tell me that I gave the impression that I'd been collecting intel. And that might actually not be entirely untrue. During my junior year of college in Washington, DC, I'd been spending a lot of time outside. Um, when I wasn't in class, I would go to DuPont Circle. Now, DuPont Circle is um, this public park that's built on a traffic circle, and it was a block away from my apartment. And I'd go there to study, to write, just be outside and be around the people. And DuPont Circle brought the people I, it was this hub for a ragtag collective of folks who would just meet up to bullshit in the afternoons, drink beer, smoke pot. It was delivery drivers, teenage runaways, addicts, petty criminals, affable homeless people, sometimes Hare Krishnas who wanted to feed these affable homeless people, and an endless parade of bike messengers. Now, I should back up here and note that I had grown up a middle-class good kid. I got good grades, didn't do drugs, I was an athlete. But I also exoticized the kids who smoked cigarettes on campus in high school and eroticized the boys who dipped out of class to do drugs. I longed so hard to be part of the bad kid crowd even though I was so not their people. <laughs> so once I noticed the scene at DuPont, I wanted in. I observed for a while from my preferred spot in the park, and every day I'd inch, sit a little closer and a little closer and a little closer until finally someone had seen me enough times to want to say hello, and then that happened enough times that I earned an invitation to sit with them. Charlie was one of the bike messengers. He was like the others in the group, but not. He was edgy, but nice. Gritty, but strikingly handsome. Cocksure, but approachable. And one day I told him he should write down my phone number. And he was my boyfriend not long after that. <laughs> and we had a decent evolution as a couple. Dinners, movies, shopping, dive bars. Pretty ordinary 1990s courtship. So I was pretty much blindsided soon after my college graduation when he broke up with me over the phone. He had said that after a year and a half, it was clear that we wanted different things. And he wanted to take some time to be on his own and then find someone who shared the same values. And this was very confusing to me because it seemed like the only space where we had conflicting values was mornings. He was a get up and go kind of guy and I was a stay down and sleep kind of girl. But I quickly went from confused to devastated one week later. I was looking at the uh, personal ads in our local free weekly and there was a personal ad that said exactly this. Morning glory, you made the right choice. It's going to be a wonderful summer. Oh. <laughs> I knew exactly who that was. Amelia. Amelia. Of we're just friends, Amelia fame. Ugh, Amelia. <laughs> I had no way of actually knowing that was from her and for him, but sometimes you just know, you know? And I, once I started shaking, I called him up and I said, did Amelia write a personal ad to you? Does she call you morning glory? That's adorable, fuck you. <laughs> he was so dumbfounded that I'd figured it out that he didn't even make any attempt at plausible deniability. He only said, how'd you know? <laughs> and I can't tell you if I objected to being dumped 
or if I objected to being dumped with a lie, but I can tell you that I did absolutely object to uncovering this lie in such a public way. Back then, I was too optimistic, by which I mean too naive, by which I mean not self-assured enough, to realize that staying broken up was actually the right thing to do. To me, then, if you love, you fight for it. I'm not sure exactly what I promised him to convince him to come back to me. I probably just said I would set my alarm or some shit. <laughs> but, but once he did decide to come back, I kind of went nuclear option. You invite me to everything you do. If I am not there, you check in with me. Oh, and by the way, you live with me now. And we live in this tiny efficiency apartment, and we, neither of us has any privacy anymore. Yay, us. <laughs> okay, honestly, I wasn't actually trying to take his privacy away. And the efficiency apartment was pretty roomy, um, but it was all I could afford in the Adams Morgan neighborhood we were now living in. And as far as one-room apartments go, like I said, it was pretty roomy. And despite the close quarters, I really felt like we were back on track. Like, the relationship felt really super solid again. But I didn't love when he got a weekend job as a barback at a nightclub in our neighborhood. So many pretty women, so many potential Amelias. I would always sleep restlessly when he didn't come home by 3. And on this one particular morning, I was awake in this rainy morning at 4.30 in the morning when he came home. And instead of hello, and instead of an apology, he greeted me with this. The weirdest thing just happened. Okay, so the version of events, according to Charlie, was he felt bad for coming home so late, so he was planning on buying me a Sunday newspaper so that I wouldn't have to go out in the morning and get it myself. And he forgot, though, because he was fumbling with this, an umbre with this umbrella. So he saw this delivery guy in, our, in front of our building, and he went up to the window and tapped on the window with his umbrella to try to buy a newspaper, and the guy started yelling, get away from me, teeth, teeth, which was actually thief, thief. <laughs> and so Charlie gave up and came inside. Now, the version of events according to the police who knocked on my door not long after this was that the driver was dropping off papers in my building, and he and Charlie passed each other in the hallway, and then Charlie turned around, followed him outside, and tried to stick him up with a handgun. So they took Charlie outside for questioning, and I stayed inside after giving consent to them for them to search my apartment. And it was so surreal. I was sitting there in my pajamas on the couch, asking for permission to smoke cigarettes, and they were upending everything, looking for this gun. I had to keep moving where I was sitting, from the couch to the chair to leaning on the kitchen counter, because they needed to go through the cereal box and flip my bed and go through all the couch cushions, and there were flashlights peeking in through the window. I lived on the first floor, and there were cops outside looking in the bushes. <sighs> I kept having to answer the same question over and over and over again. I was home all night. He was at work all night. No, we don't have a gun. He said that he was trying to buy a newspaper. I didn't see what happened. No, we don't have a gun. Also, no, we don't have a gun. The last time they asked about a gun, I was so tired and disoriented about what was going on that I kind of stopped recognizing how serious the situation was, and I got a little sassy, and I said, well, we have a Nintendo Duck Hunt gun. Is that what you're looking for? <laughs> and that, that sass didn't necessarily work, because then it turned into, oh, a Duck Hunt gun. Did your boyfriend take it with him to work? Have you ever seen him leave the house with it? <laughs> And I clarified for them that a Nintendo Duck Hunt gun is comedically oversized, it's gray, it's plastic, it has big red buttons on it. 
I still had to produce it so they could understand that anyone who mistakes that for a handgun is drunk. So when the search was all over, they told me that the delivery driver had positively ID'd Charlie when they were outside. Um, and they determined that because the driver was, as they put it, a hard-working family man, um, they decided to go ahead and make the arrest, even though they never found a gun. Fortunately, it was just one night in jail for Charlie. Apparently, he spent that night squashing cockroaches in his cell with the bologna sandwich they'd given him. Also fortunately, because there was no gun, they released him on his own recognizance, which was really cool because I certainly didn't have the funds to help him and neither did his mother and I was not bringing this to my parents. But the ordeal was not quite over. Charlie still had to work on getting the case dropped via his public defender. At some point, I was called to meet with the prosecutor to answer some questions and give my version of events. I liked the prosecutor mostly because he agreed with me that my crack about the duck hunt gun was very funny. <laughs> and apparently he liked me because even though I didn't know anything more than what Charlie had told me and what had happened during the search, he told me privately that it was only talking to me that convinced him to drop the charge and expunge the record. He didn't think much of this barback bike messenger, but me, I seemed like a good kid. This didn't break us up. Maybe in some ways the jail time made Charlie seem even more like a bad kid and all the more endearing. But there was, in fact, another Amelia at the nightclub, though this Amelia was named Melody. I found out about her a week before he was going to move to, back to Chicago with me. I told him not to come. Actually, I said a lot of things. <laughs> so now it was his turn to convince me to stick with it. And somehow I did. I had my doubts, major, major doubts. But we had put so much work into it, fought so hard for it, and I felt like we owed it to ourselves to know that we did everything we could to try to make it work, and we moved to Chicago in March. We even got engaged that Christmas, the most romantic gesture you'll ever see. I love you, so, uh, here. I didn't entirely trust him still, but back then I was too optimistic, by which I mean too naive, by which I mean not self-assured enough to recognize that if someone proposes, you don't have to say yes. And you know, it was easy to think of the cheating as this one relationship flaw because I saw it. The entire time we were together, I never thought twice about the attempted robbery charge. Never doubted him, and in fact, I must have rarely talked about it because people who were very close to me back then, including my siblings, have no recollection of this happening whatsoever. If he'd ever had a gun, I never saw it. But all that said, the thing that ultimately broke us up was that I had found out that he'd memorized the pin for my ATM card, and while I was sleeping, he would sneak out at night and steal money from my checking account. A gambling addiction. So who knows? Maybe he did fail at a robbery attempt that night. But still, I doubt it. And I don't feel bad that I helped him get out of the charge. The only thing I do know is that I didn't do myself any favors. Thank you. <laughs> So as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, Beth Milligan, the head writer of The Ticker, is here with us to talk about the theme for next month's show, You Are Here. That also happens to be our last mainstage show of the season. 
Thanks for joining us, Beth. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, like me, you are not originally from Traverse. That's true. Where are you from? I was born in Alpena, which is uh, directly across the state of Michigan on the other side, the Lake Huron side, almost parallel to Traverse City. Yeah, I've seen the signs, but yeah. I've never been. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much all you see, because a lot of people don't go to Alpena anymore. But that's where I was born, uh, and that's where I lived um, the first few years of my life. I did move here to Traverse City when I was a kid. Oh, okay. Um, so I've, I've, I've basically been a Traverse City native, but I have learned uh, from sometimes some of the older families in Traverse City that if you are not born in Traverse city it's sometimes hard to earn that native status no mm-hmm. matter how long you've been here so yeah i've heard the word permafudge yeah <laughs> transplant is also another popular one um i do still have family in alpina and i've gone back there almost every year since i've been a kid so i still have a strong connection there Cool. Okay. But so you went to like elementary school, graduated from high school here, all that. Yeah. Yeah. So Traverse City has been my home for a while. I would okay. Say. Cool. Yeah. I've been here for ex- as of December of this year, it will be 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So I think you're at least officially in transplant. Yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> I do pay my taxes here. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I do get pulled over by the cops here and then they say, oh, you have a Michigan plate, not an Illinois plate. <laughs> Maybe we'll be nicer to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. Yeah, is that the kind of thing where they're going to be like targeting me? Because I said that on the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I drive like I'm from Chicago because that's where I learned how to drive. Okay. And some uh, that got me in trouble this past week. <laughs> yeah, that's intense. Chicago's a little intense. Yeah, don't know how to tone it down. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's the kind of thing where, you know, like if someone's driving really slow, you know, I'm like tailgating, like speed up, speed up. And then if they're tailgating me, I'm like, what's your problem? <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, I have a desk that overlooks Front Street in downtown Traverse City. And a good part of my day is just spent watching people kind of road rage drive down front street or try to park and it's pretty enjoyable i think to watch other people be yeah. horrible drivers <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah no i have to say when the 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 officer of the piece said why are you driving so fast i didn't i didn't even try mm-hmm. i said i have no excuse <laughs> you're like this is me i'm gonna do me yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so um it's so embarrassing to actually get caught <laughs> yeah so um have you lived anywhere else besides Travers? uh i did i lived in naples florida after high oh. school i had uh, an uncle who lived down there and kind of wanted to get a break from michigan so i spent some time down there it's kind of it's very similar to Traverse city i feel like the vibe it's a gulf coast kind of community and has that very sort of same touristy uh, waterfront uh, element that Traverse City has. Um, but other than that, I've I've been here. I've traveled pretty extensively. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in my 20s thinking about whether I'd want somewhere else to be home mm-hmm. other than Traverse City, I think, as a lot of people do in their 20s. And kind of made this conscious decision. I was deciding between L.A. and New York and wanting to pursue writing or the entertainment industry. And those are obviously two places that a lot of people go to do that. And I just made this conscious decision to stay in Travers um, because I really liked the idea of being a kind of a, a big fish in a smaller pond rather than invisible fish <laughs> in a in a big pond mm-hmm. um, and of having roots and I like the idea of living in a place where I might actually make a difference in my community where I might walk down the street and know people but not too many people it's mm-hmm. not a super <laughs> small town it's large enough where you still feel like you've got some of the cultural benefits and can grow um, so yeah that was a conscious decision on my part to to make Traverse State my home. Cool. Yeah. I, I So I went to college in Washington, D.C. And I remember when I left, part of the reason was I felt like this place is too small. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a city and I bump into people I know everywhere I go. 
Um, but then there's that city mentality where you kind of want anonymity. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, I never thought I would move to Traverse. In fact, in 2003, I declared that I would never come here again <laughs> because of <laughs> a bad vacation. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, clearly uh, declarations only get you so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, having grown up in Traverse City, there is that thing. I think I felt that itch a lot of people feel when you're in so, somewhat smaller communities of wanting to see kind of the big world and wanting to get away from all these people that you went to high school with and and see it. And I, I did that a little bit when I went to Naples and, I, and, and also in traveling. But um, I came to really definitely see the benefit of being a part a rooted and integral part of a place mm-hmm. oh yeah no I actually love it now when I like I see people like everywhere I go um and sometimes because of the storytelling like people will greet me but I don't recognize them necessarily sure yeah <laughs> that actually happened to me once at in Kilkenny's I was going into the bathroom and someone was walking out and she said hi and I said hi yeah <laughs> she was like oh sorry I go to your show you don't know me <laughs> so but actually I like that when again before I just it surprises me because of where I was previously in life when I first moved here actually I um like going to the grocery store and the cashier is having a conversation with the person in front of you which adds time and I would be so impatient and and I, I mean, I have friends who still live in Chicago who they post all the time on Facebook. Like, ah, why do the cashiers talk to me? Um, but like, I actually really like it now. And mm-hmm. if the cashier doesn't want to talk to me again, it's like, what's your problem? Yeah. <laughs> so. I think, I mean, the downside mm-hmm. is I've definitely had periods where I've been single. And if you have like bad dates and you will see that person without a doubt at the grocery store, at the bank, like every, seemingly everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of that's a little bit hard to escape, but the plus side of it is you know being able to see a lot of people that you know on a frequent basis but I I still I'll go to a different kind of event or maybe go to a restaurant or bar I don't go to very often and I'll still see you know I'll be like I don't know anyone here Um, so it's big enough that you can meet new people and not feel like you're kind of in that bubble right yeah yeah actually I single for a very long time here (laughs) and uh, that exact thing where it's you know like when you like swipe through the tinder matches it's not just are you attractive do you seem interesting but do you seem like you would be a decent person if it didn't work out and i was bumped into you at meyer right because yeah anytime i've used any of those dating apps it's like coworker, coworker, <laughs> former person i went to school with you know like you know ex-boyfriend so <laughs> or you're still here you're still here right you're still here. i can't believe we're all on this together that's <laughs> yeah. like why don't we go on a date because we're we've both been like swiping left on each other for years right <laughs> um yeah, so I mean, so you're probably pretty good with the Traverse Winters. That's been hard a hard adjustment for me. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I think as I'm getting older, I'm becoming less tolerant. I, I get the snowbird appeal now, that, that <laughs> lifestyle. Um, my boyfriend Joe has a house in L.A. He's a recent transplant back to Michigan. He grew up in Michigan but lived in L.A. for 20 years. He is having a very difficult <laughs> adjustment period <laughs> to the Michigan winters, and we were able to leave for three weeks this winter and go back to his house in L.A., and I got very spoiled of being able to get up in the morning in January and go hiking and pick oranges right off the trees and and then came back and I was like oh yeah okay I think I think I'm gonna get to that point in my life where maybe I'm gonna try to schedule more traveling or spending some time in LA or somewhere else in the winter it's it's hard but it's it's beautiful and if you can stay active that's a good way to kind of get around it yeah for sure yeah this winter I actually somebody 
kept plowing my driveway for me and I have no idea who and it's driving me nuts because I want to say thank you but I don't know who I'm thanking <laughs> yeah and I hope it's not just a one person they choose per season because I want that to happen all the time now <laughs> Have you, I think you should build like a gratitude snowman who has like a little <laughs> sign or something near the end of the driveway just to be like I am very much enjoying this please come back next year that's awesome that's that's a very northern Michigan thing by the way that someone would just kindly plow your driveway anonymously that's yeah amazing yeah I asked my next door neighbor I was like was that you all winter and he was like no <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't even ask the one on the other side <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, nobody wants to do it. Um, and actually, I mean, they didn't do my walkway for me, which is long. Come on, um, anonymous guy. Get on it. Get on the walkway right. next year. Yeah, no, that was that was hard. At one point, I just gave up because it was just like every time I snowed, the wind would blow it all right back an hour later. And I was just like, Ugh, I'm just going to walk like a penguin yeah. for, you know, two months. <laughs> actually, um, there, did you ever see The Wiz? The movie? The, Oh, yes. The version of... Uh, Michael Jackson's in that, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's been a while. Yeah. No, there's um, this uh, at the end of the movie when Eveline gets flushed down the toilet and, you know, all the uh, factory workers like cast off their burden and they start launching into the song called, you know, Can't You Feel a Brand New Day? That is how I feel every spring. <laughs> it's just like, I just want to dance and sing that. Yes. Um, and also today was the... Now that it's warm, it was the annual... Oh, there's the dog shit day. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. These are all the hallmarks like I try to explain to Joe of like big things in spring, like opening day for the Tigers, having your first Oberon, you know, having the first day over 50 degrees where suddenly everyone's wearing shorts for absolutely no logical reason. And then there will come the hard crash. I'm like, it will snow again. These are all the kind of rites of passage for a springtime Michigander. So, Oh, yeah, those two blizzards last April. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> After the second one, I like actually yelled at my shovel I was like I don't want to touch you anymore <laughs> so um so yeah so you're the head writer at the T Traverse Ticker um gotta ask you I mean so you I mean you basically have your finger on the pulse of everything that's happening here try like, to yeah <laughs> Uh, financially responsible for doing that, yes. <laughs> Employed too, yeah. Right. Um, so do people ever stop you on the street to complain to you about local politics and business developments? Like they feel like because you write the articles that you are the person to, like you're the complaints box. <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. Um, that does happen. Uh, I, you know, there's a positive side of it too, which is, um, you know, I've covered a lot of like, as an example, new business openings over the year and have gotten, you know, a lot of gratitude from new business owners for like a ticker bump when we've, you know, highlighted that they're opening or something. And like, that makes me really proud. I'm always excited to highlight or, you know, like a good nonprofit cause, something like that. When we bring attention to important issues, I feel really gratified by that. But the downside of it is, yes, people want to stop me and complain about the way I covered something, something that they think I did wrong. Um, even friends, you know, and for me particularly, it's, uh, there's a, there's a certain phrase that'll come up, you know, like if I'm sitting at the bar having a beer and someone will be like can I just say one thing <laughs> and that's you know regardless of any aspect of your life if someone's gonna say that to you you just need to kind of brace <laughs> brace for what's coming next um but it'll be like oh I just really like hate how the ticker is laid out or I really like hate this you know or then it's kind of just like I know it's kind of part of the territory, and I'm open to that feedback. I mean, I I feel even though the ticker is my job, it's also something I'm really passionate about. I want to make it better, so I'm open to hearing those suggestions. 
But there is kind of a time and a place where you're just like, I'm just trying to relax and have a beer, <laughs> right. you know, like Off I don't the really, clock. I don't design the ticker. I, I don't design our web page, but sure. If you want to, I can tell this has been, you've been waiting for this moment <laughs> to share this with me. And you're so excited that you ran into me at seven months. So yes, let's, let's talk about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it comes with the territory, I think. Yeah, but you could probably also, if someone says, can I just say one thing, just say, no, thanks, and walk away. That's true. That's true. I haven't gotten good about feeling like I have the right to do that yet, um, but I think I will at a certain point. Um, I also moderate our social media and the comment sections on our stories, so I've gotten pretty good at being diplomatic in, mm-hmm. in handling th- those things and also toughening my skin up, you know. One thing about being a journalist is you're often putting a spotlight on other people and that can feel very vulnerable and exposing to people who are featured in your story. So I try to keep that in mind, you know, if I'm how would I feel if the story is written about me and some things, especially like with government officials, you have to hold them accountable. But I really try to be fair in my coverage. So the flip side of that is I try to uh, I've been trying to have tougher skin that I know when people are complaining about something that is not usually about me it's more about how something has impacted them or you know I'm not personally responsible for whether they like a font size in the ticker or not so (laughs) or building heights (laughs) exactly or building heights or any other issue that we cover so I will say over the years I'm I'm not all the way there I'm still a little sensitive but I'm getting better at having a thicker skin about those things yeah well I'm sure you've had to develop a a strong opinion about roundabouts (laughs) roundabouts is another one yeah people do love to talk about roundabouts in Traverse City (laughs) yeah I have to say that I love reading the comments on the ticker articles yeah it just it the those conversations devolve so quickly and a, a lot of the time like I feel like the complaints they don't even make sense like I like it's like, did you read the article? <laughs> yeah. Or why, like, what does that have to do with anything type thing? You know, it's, a it's comment, fun. <laughs> a comment section in a town like Traverse City is kind of fun because there is this sort of assumption by people posting on the internet, I think anywhere on the internet, that they're posting in this sort of vacuum and it doesn't correlate to the outside worlds. But then if you walk up to someone on like front street and you're like, Hey, I saw what you posted on the ticker mm-hmm. this morning. They'll get this weird embarrassed, like look on their face. <laughs> like they didn't know somehow that I would see it. And, and so it's, it's kind of fun to have that like real life accountability of there have been multiple times, you know, cause mo- like several city and County commissioners, have Facebook and social media pages. So they'll kind of sometimes get in discussions online about issues that are going on in the city. And then sometimes those comments that they made on Facebook will come up at a city commission meeting where people will say, I saw this commissioner post this online or you said this on Facebook. And they always seem to have this look of surprise. Like, (laughs) I didn't think anybody saw that. (laughs) Um, So I kind of like it in a way because it's taking that huge world of internet comments and putting it you know, in, in, a, in a sphere of people, you might run into them and have those conversations in real life, too. So. Yeah, that's why I never post comments myself. I think them. I, yeah. I always know what I would say, <laughs> but it's like, oh, they they all can see me and I don't want to call attention to myself. Yeah, um, I'd rather have a one on one conversation, you know. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, but it's that said, 
I do love reading it. That's a it is a fun activity. Yes. <laughs> um, and actually, you're mod- you're changing your approach to comments. Yeah, I just so read that. We're we're just switching platforms. We're trying to right now. We have like um, it's it's basically like a Facebook commenting system on our ticker stories on our website, and we're using a new system called Discus, which is EBC News and a bunch of other major news websites use it. It's just a little more controlled in terms of like it's harder to create a fake profile mm-hmm. and post fake comments. It's easier for us to mod- it can flag you know certain words so generally we try not to censor any discussion in our comment section we do remove hate speech we do remove obscenities threats slurs anything that is kind of along that line spam mm-hmm. um solicitation so yeah it's just it's it'll continue to allow the conversation to happen there's already people who are upset about it because they kind of <laughs> like the fake names and being able to post whatever they want but yeah it's a compromise for us a lot of news organizations struggle with whether or not to have com- comment sections in general I personally do not like them I would prefer not to have them because I think it it sort of is an easy way to propagate um, false information and it's right under your story that has real information so it can become confused right right and I think it just kind of spreads hostility however it does drive web traffic and it does drive community conversation where people like to be able to share their opinions one helpful aspect is they do post uh, the questions and I can respond and give more information so we've decided as a company to keep them, but we're trying to find ways to make them work better. Cool. Yeah. I've also enjoyed um, some conspiracy theories as to who is behind some of the fake profiles. Yeah. <laughs> we have a couple of regulars that seem to kind of shift names. And I, I think I kind of know who is who, yeah. but it's it's its own whole world, right. the comment section. <laughs> For sure. Um, so I also recently learned that you yourself have a podcast called etc how long have you been doing that i do yeah um probably i think we're getting into i want to say maybe our 25th episode it's been about a year maybe a year and a half that Mm -hmm. we've been going um it's with a my co-host his name is anthony weber he is a pastor and also an instructor at the community college here in traverse city nmc and uh we have known each other for over a decade maybe 15 years 10 15 years and we have done versions of et cetera in the past um, as a live event in which we've had um, panelists talk about, uh, you know, difficult, controversial topics, whether it's abortion, animal rights, something like that. And then on the podcast, we just talk about those things as well. Um, what's sort of unique about it, we both love a lot of the same topics. We love pop culture. We love philosophy. We love politics. He leans um, fairly conservative. Um, I lean fairly liberal. Uh, we didn't, we don't have a show where we just yell at each other (laughs) and kind of cross talk over our views. We both really care about each other. We, uh, have a great kind of bond and we both care a lot about facts. He is a teacher, um, me as a journalist. So when we talk about things like border security on the show, we come into it with a lot of research done. We provide Uh, links to all of that research for our listeners so that they can do their own research and kind of make decisions for themselves. And we get into really tough conversations um, that we just navigate with kind of open minds and open hearts. So I I think it's kind of a format that's unique because we're not having a lot of those discussions. We're having a lot of talking heads yelling at each other or we're having social media fights, but we're not having – you and I sitting down looking at each other eye to eye and saying, we don't agree about this issue about gay rights, but let's talk about why. Like, what do you, what's your faith perspective? What's my perspective? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it. I think we were tackling some tough subjects in a unique way. 
Great. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, where can people find that? Yeah. So if you search on Facebook for etc. all one word, TC, um, we're on Facebook. We're also on etc.tc.blogspot.com. That's where Anthony puts all the show notes and the links to the audio. So okay. people can find us there. Great. Yeah. So everyone, check out the podcast, etc. And if you would like to know what is going on around here, that is Traverse City uh, and the... Uh, county i suppose how actually how how, how wide is your reach grand Traverse and leelanau county is okay. our primary focus yeah. okay yeah so if you want to know about the local goings-on with politics and business development and other controversial topics <laughs> and read the comment section while you're there <laughs> uh check out the traverse ticker so thanks again for uh joining us today beth thanks for having me Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. And another thanks to our in-studio guest, Beth Milligan. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in May for our last main stage show of season six, where our theme is You Are Here. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.